Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and welcome to Master Leadership Through Crisis series, where we will connect with leaders worldwide to gain insights on important questions to help us navigate these rough waters. If you would like to participate as a guest, or if you have a question that you would like to ask, go to masterleadership.org forward slash podcast. That's masterleadership.org forward slash podcast for more information. Today, we are speaking with Karen Groves, an author and educator who specializes in the impact of trauma and its symptomatology on student success. Her book entitled Trauma Doesn't Stop at the School Door provides concrete, doable, in-the-trenches strategies and solutions for educators from pre-K through college. A former college president, tenured law professor and senior policy advisor to the U.S. Department of Education in the Obama administration, she has worked for decades to improve the American education system. Her favorite leadership roles, despite her high-profile jobs, have involved young children. Karen has long believed that as important as higher education is, we need to back up the education train and focus on our youngest children if we want to make a lasting difference. Welcome, Karen Groves. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Nice to be with you. Delighted. Yes, nice to be with you too. You are so colorful. I love that. And I love what's in the background too, a beautiful painting. Yes. So actually, your surroundings matter. Mm -hmm. They message and they signal. Especially when I read to children, I try to wear costumes or bright colors or colors that match the characters or be in a setting that's visually interesting. Fantastic. I have some work to do. (laughs) All right. So we're so happy to have you on our podcast. Are you ready to pour into our listeners? I am, and I look forward to it. Fantastic. Karen, tell us a bit about your path to leadership and what you're doing now. So my path to leadership was not straight. And I think that's a really important thing for future leaders to realize that you don't always start in one place and have a clear expectation for where you'll land. So in point of fact, When people say to me, did you always want to be a college president? The answer is no, it never even dawned on me. But over my lifetime, as doors opened, I walked in. And sometimes those were pathways I hadn't expected that took me in new directions. And sometimes it took me to places where I said, whoa, this is not where I want to be for the next 30 years. And one could say that I've been a leader in a variety of contexts. And so what's changed isn't that I've been leading, it's where I've been leading. Mm -hmm. Doors opened and you walked in. And oftentimes doors open and we're afraid to walk in. Speak to that a little bit. I think that's very true. I think we're reluctant to walk in 
when we don't know what's there. And what I say to people is, you have a choice. You can walk in or you can not walk in, which is also a choice. And which one presents the greater risk? So for me, walking in doesn't mean you're forever lost. You could always walk back. But if you don't go in, that door may close and those opportunities may not be there for you. And you're risking a lot of beautiful possibilities. Correct. And so what are you doing now? So I do a variety of things. Basically, I spend my time as an author and educator, which means I write adult and children's books, which I then either read to children or with children in school settings or community settings. The second thing that I do is I work with adults on student success, both within organizations and within educational institutions. And the last thing I do is I focus on trauma and its impact on student success across the entire educational pipeline from early childhood all the way through adulthood. And sadly, trauma is way more present than I think we recognize. Its impact is way more powerful than many people acknowledge. And so much of my time is spent either at disaster sites or at locations that have experienced trauma and need to restart where they are in a way that's healthier and better. And right now we are experiencing a global pandemic. We're hoping to be on the tail end of it. We're not sure. How has this affected you and your organization? It's a really interesting question. So I have for a while had a forthcoming book from Columbia Teachers College Press called Trauma Doesn't Stop at the School Door. Mm-hmm. And the book, which is coming out in June of 2020, is all about how to help educational institutions deal with student trauma, whether it's nature-based or personal base. And at the time the book was originally written, there was no pandemic. In fact, the pandemic wasn't anywhere near my thinking. And actually, when the book acquisition editor was asked the same question, he said, no, I wasn't prescient. I had no idea there was going to be a pandemic. And what's happened is that because the pandemic is traumatic and causes trauma symptomology in many, many, many people across the globe, the book has taken on new meaning, new value, and new importance. And so my work has increased multifold because many people are thinking about issues like, how do we restart school in this environment? How do we help children who are learning at home in this environment? How do we acknowledge or know what's traumatic symptomology? Is it catching? Can teachers catch it? And how are they going to be coping? So a lot of issues in that book, which thankfully I could update before it's going to press. So it actually has... COVID-19 suggestions embedded in it. So the book is really au courant, but it has changed my day-to-day life because I'm spending most of it on how to deal with trauma. Mm. Certainly very important work 
where can our listeners get the book? How can they connect with you? There are a variety of ways to get the book. There are the usual channels, places like Amazon and the like. You can also get it from Teachers College Press, and their website is www.tcpress.com. I also have a website, and you can hyperlink through the website to order the book. And you can learn more about what I've written and where I speak and what I think on a variety of issues. And there's a contact form there and you can reach out to me, which I hope people will. That website is www.karengrosseducation.com. K-A-R-E-N-G-R-O-S-S education.com. And the book is Trauma Doesn't Stop at the School Door. Correct. We carry our trauma with us like an invisible backpack, and it goes everywhere with us. And actually, the cover of the book, you know, many covers don't do much for me. This cover is really wonderful because it has the door of a school, which you could be going into or out of, And at the entryway is a backpack standing in for the trauma that kids carry into and out of school. Okay, so I I know I have a copy of that, so I'll make sure I post it. So thank you so much for that. Now, Karen, what resources, quotes, or advice has helped you most during this crisis? I think the saying that I keep repeating And it's one actually that has profound meaning for me and I hope for many others, is that education happens in many places and spaces of which the classroom is but one. So let me say it again and sort of decode it a little bit. Education happens in many places and spaces of which the classroom is but one. When we shut down our classrooms, we have to be really careful to say we haven't shut down education. We've moved education to different places and spaces. And one of the things for me is that education can take so many forms and parents and childcare workers and guardians are feeling, oh, I have to do that curriculum and all that online learning and it isn't going well. And There's no education happening. And actually, that's not true at all. If you read to children, if you play with children, if you cook and follow a recipe with children, all of that is learning and education. And so as important as classroom engagement is, and as high quality as it can be, it isn't the only place where we can learn. Right. And educators ourselves are in a position where we are growing and we're learning and we're expanding and getting uncomfortable, which is a good place to be, actually, because we have to model learning as well. Yes. And I think one of the interesting things for me is that the best paradigm for learning is when it's reciprocal, when students are learning from their teachers and professors and staff. And the staff and faculty and administration is learning from students. And the best learning happens when it's reciprocal. Yes. So 
that can happen now without human touch and with distancing. And it's not in many ways ideal, but you could think about it creatively. You could think about all the ways that education can happen. So here's a funny anecdote about this, if I could share it. Of course. So I wrote a children's book that's bilingual for young children called We See You Tebemos. And in one of life's unbelievable things, the book was printed on indestructible paper. Now that was originally done so that the book could be handed around in classrooms, it doesn't rip. It's sort of the modern equivalent of a cloth book. But in a time of a pandemic, where everybody's washing everything down with wipes, this is a book you can wipe down. <laughs> there it is. You're such a forward thinker. <laughs> and it can be used by multiple kids in a family, and you don't have to worry. I love it. The coronavirus, you know, skipping around in the book. So, but maybe more important than that is that the book is actually, it's a story of two biracial kids playing hide and seek, both with themselves and then with animals. But... The theme behind it is object constancy and dealing with separation. And what better time than now to be thinking about issues of object constancy and separation in a world where we are being separated from people we care about, our teachers, our grandparents, our friends, and object constancy, which is what enables us to say, this too shall change, we will see them eventually, is a hugely important concept. And so a book which wasn't intended for COVID-19 has turned out to be a perfect children's book for COVID-19, and it's bilingual in English and Spanish. Hey, leaders, stay tuned for the rest of the interview following this brief message. If you want to find, claim, develop, and expand your voice in order to land that job, those clients, or that partner, then Master Your Swag podcast is for you. You don't have to have expert credentials to be featured, and you can select from several plans that can perfectly match your needs. Go to MasterYourSwag.com and claim your spot as a guest, and be ready to get noticed. That's MasterYourSwag.com. As I hear where you're coming from and I see your work, it's a passion project and it gets deeper than just knowledge. It speaks to the emotional level, which is really, really important. So I'm very curious, what drove you towards this work? Because it's typically something that we either had to deal with or something deep that drives us to our passion and what we should be doing. And you're clearly in your passion. So that's a really good question. And as you probably surmise, it's a deeply personal one. So let me just start by answering that I have a children's book series called Lady Lucy's Quest about a young multiracial heroine who wants to become a knight in the Middle Ages. And she's told, no, 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 girls can't be knights. And she says, well, wait a minute, I think I can be a knight. And the story is about her becoming a knight and then going on a variety of quests. 
where the world is sort of against her, but she and her team managed to succeed. So at one of the first readings of that book to second graders, I'm sitting there, we read the story, and I say, oh, let's ask some questions. And the student raises her hand and says, are you Lady Lucy? <laughs> and you know that old adage that children really do ask the real hard questions, the ones that go to the core. So the answer is yes, I've experienced trauma and I'm very open about it in the work that I do. I'm very open about it in groups. I disclose my ACE score. And so when you look at me and you look at what I've done, people often say, well, she must have led a charmed life. What is she doing talking about trauma? And I then say, well, you know, for starters, as I mentioned, trauma is invisible. Mm -hmm. And you don't know the story about how we got to where we are. And actually, I think it's been very helpful for people to realize that my work is grounded in, deeply rooted in personal experience, as well as all the academic and scientific literature that supports the work I do. And my adult books are filled with stories, my own and those of others so that people can see that I don't just get to where I am intellectually. I get there from the inside. And I appreciate you sharing that. It is deep work. And even though we're on a Zoom call, I can feel your energy. And I think that's beautiful. So thank you for sharing that. So Karen, many use the term lifelong learner. What does that mean to you? And what are you learning right now? I think actually we're all lifelong learners and we make them. Well, I want to say not everybody is. That's true. Everybody could be. Right. Accurate <laughs> statement. Yes. I think that's a very good correction, but I might defend myself by saying that sometimes we learn without knowing it so that we all could be lifetime learners. We're just not aware of what we're learning. So I would tell you that living life is a learning experience, even if you don't see how it's changing you. So sadly in education, we think that when you get a diploma, that's the end. And whether that's a high school diploma or a college diploma or whatever kind of diploma one gets, that's when school ends and work starts. And for me, that's a really artificial and false barrier there because hopefully one continues to learn and to grow and the world is changing so rapidly that if we don't continue to learn and grow, we'll be left behind. Mm -hmm. And so one of the hardest things for me in education is to share that our obligation to students doesn't end when they graduate. We have a lifelong obligation to both give them the skill to love learning while they're with us and to help them transition that skill after they graduate into the life they lead. Hmm. But we often just say, oh, diploma, done. You're gone, <laughs> next group. Right. But no, no, that's really all wrong. Mm -hmm. And what are you learning right now? <laughs> I'm learning a lot. You know, one of the things I talk about in my work is that if you deal with trauma all the time, you have to remember self-care. Yes. And 
for teachers, that's a really big issue because if they're around kids who are struggling all the time and they don't take any time for themselves and then they go home and take care of their own family situation, that's hugely draining. And I think it's taken me a bit to realize that even remotely, because of the nature of the work I'm doing now, I have to take time to self-care. And the interesting thing is I think sometimes I'm actually working more now during the pandemic than I did before. So the need for self-care, particularly given the nature of our world and the work I do, is difficult. So one thing I've learned is I should listen to what I write and um, follow my own advice and exercise some self-care. I think the second thing I've learned is that different people respond really differently to something like a pandemic. Mm -hmm. And we tend to think that we understand how someone else, even someone very close to us, thinks. But we all make different risk assessments and we all have different risk tolerance mechanisms. And I think I've learned that you actually have to realize that the person across from you or next to you or in your house may not have the same risk assessment and risk tolerance that you do. So for some people, going to a grocery store is really a hugely difficult task. Even if they wear gloves, even if they wear a mask, they don't want to go in. For other people, the idea of getting in an elevator is really frightening. They don't want to be in a closed space where someone else's air has been. Some people wash down their food in their groceries. Some people take off their clothes every time they come in from being out and put them in the washing machine. So I think we have to realize that how people are responding is very different person to person. Even people you thought you knew really well because the situation's new and not everybody is approaching it the same way. It's funny that you should say that because I was at a supermarket the other day and I saw someone struggling. I had my mask on and I said, would you like some help? And she said, no, thank you, darling. And she reached out to me and she touched me. And then she was like, oh, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, no, I haven't been touched by strangers in such a long time. And I'm a very touchy-feely person. But you can tell her she was so scared. And I just, you know, I I was like, no, it's okay. (laughs) But yes, you're right. People do have a different gauge as far as their risk tolerance. And we'll see it more and more as we engage more with people. Right. And it's not a value judgment, right? I mean, it's just a calculus that we each have that puts us in a different place. And sometimes it makes us grumpy, which is another thing to think about and understand. So I recently was at a park that had been opened and you could walk. And for the most part, people were keeping social distance, but there was a stairwell that went up from one path to another. And as I was going up the path, I felt people too close behind me. Hmm. Now, what I normally would have done is say, excuse me, could you just back up a little bit? Or maybe I would have moved a little faster. But no, in this pandemic moment, I'm like, ah, you know, you're too close. You're way too close. You have to back up and pay attention here. And were you raised in New York? (laughs) 
I lived in New York for many, many years. And finally, I think the third thing that I've learned is humans as a general species don't like to be out of control. I knew that before, but you see it so vividly now. And, you know, the effort to create a timeline, we'll do this on this day and we'll open on this day. And Dr. Fauci then says, no, no, um, actually, the virus is the one setting the timetable and we can't control it. And I think the idea that we can't control our environment and our lives, and we can't foresee even the next month, let alone two months, three months, four months, Mm -hmm. is very hard. I mean, we're not built for that level of uncertainty. And it doesn't always bring out the best. But being self-reflective, having people speak into your life is what leadership is about. It's certainly why we're having these conversations so that we can learn from each other. And I appreciate your perspective on this. Now, Karen, when you think- Can I just add something? Sure. I think being a leader now is a hard job. And you have to be really transparent. I mean, there is nothing more important now than speaking the truth and being honest about what's happening. And we often so want to sugarcoat or make life easier for people. But I think right now, leaders have to be transparent, both about what they're feeling and seeing. I mean, not that they should be weeping all the time, but I think they have to be honest that Mm -hmm. this is a hard time and they're dealing with it and they're going to help others deal with it, and we're all dealing with it together. But the one thing you can count on from a leader should be that they are trustworthy and transparent. And I absolutely agree. And when you think of leadership today, what are you most hopeful about? I'd say I'm most hopeful about the power of the possible. I think humans have enormous capacity to innovate and be creative when given an opportunity to do that. I truly believe that people working together can change the world. And so I'm hopeful that when you have a big calamity or a crisis, that there's some way in which the collective can move forward and get some benefits on a go forward basis Mm -hmm. that enables life to be not immediately necessarily, but at some point better. The power of the possible is certainly something that ignites us or should ignite us. So I appreciate that. Now, Drew Dudley has a question for you. What is a piece of life or leadership advice or any wisdom or cultural cliche that you don't agree with or have an issue with? So here's the advice that I do not believe in that we ought to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And when it gets tough, the tough get going. They're all basically based and grounded in individualism. And that if I did it the hard way, you should do it the hard way too. By the way, just think about it. How would you pull yourself up by your bootstraps? I mean, you'd have to be like, I don't know, like on the ground. I don't know even Mm -hmm. how you would do it. But the rugged individualism that sort of undergirds a lot of American thought 
and belief systems, I think isn't right. I think the answer is that we really should be able to help people. And when you help them, you're not lowering standards. Since when is helping someone lowering standards? If the idea is success, why does it matter how you get to success as long as you get there? So when people say, oh, you must be lowering standards because you're helping all these people or you're a snowflake and coddling. And I go, if I can help someone become their best self and they need help to get there, it shouldn't matter as long as they end up with that success. So that old adage, when you know things get tough, the tough get going and the rest get left behind, I don't buy it. We can help others, which is absolutely, blessings can flow to us and through us, but then we need help too. Yes. You know, and that's okay. And I love that. Thank you so much for that. Now, as a listener of this podcast, what is a question that you would like a future leadership guest to respond to? I think the question I would ask is, what is it that people see as missing from the leaders they encounter? Whether those are leaders in schools, leaders in businesses, leaders in religious organizations. And if you can answer the missing question, then flip the question and ask, what is the quality you see in the leaders you like that you value? Mm -hmm. And I think you have to ask both the positive and the negative question. I love that. Thank you so much. I will be asking that of a future guest. Now, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners, Karen? Well, the one thing I would like to share is the power right now of reading, because reading is an engagement activity, even if you're not doing it sitting next to someone. Reading allows you to let your imagination go. Even if I were to read to you, it allows for a form of conversation we wouldn't otherwise have. And so reading for me is something that can be done now in ways that take on new and important meaning in a pandemic. Very important. Thank you so much for adding value to me and to our listeners. Nice to be with you. Okay. Have a great day. Thank you for doing this. In closing, here's a quick message. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.